We are going to learn the Sicha of Parshas Vayishlach, the fifth Sicha in Chilak Tesvav of Lukut Sichas. And the Sicha begins by discussing the end of the Parsha where we learn about the kings who ruled in the land of Edom, in the land of Esav, before the time that there were kings amongst the Jewish people. And the Pasuk lists those kings, and the Rebbe stops on the Rashi that discusses one of the people who are mentioned, whose name is Yovav ben Zerach from Botsra. Yovav, the son of Zerach from Botsra. Rashi stops to explain the following. What is Botsra? Botsra is a city that really was a city from Moab. And he brings a posuk that speaks about the different cities of Moab. He quotes the posuk that says, Al Kroyos, Kroyos was the city of Moab, and uh, Botsra was the city of Moab, etc. And then Rashi adds, and because Moab was the one who supplied Edom with the king, ultimately Moab, Botsra, will perish together with Edom. As the posuk says later, Hashem will come and avenge and take care of those who hurt B'nai Yisrael, and amongst them is Botra. So Rashi, the Rebbe asks, why do we have to know that Botra, which was the place that Yovah ben Zerach came from, and he was a melech from Edom, why is it necessary to tell us that Botra was a city that really belonged to Moab? So some of the Mepharshim, explain that Rashi is trying to tell us where he is from in order to inform us that the place where he is from, the city of Basra, in the future when Hashem will take revenge in Moab, this city that provided a melech, a king for Edom, will be destroyed. However, the Rebbe says this is not sufficient based on what these Mepharshim say for several reasons. Number one, why is it necessary when we are reading the list of the kings who came from Edom, who ruled in Edom, why do we have to know that this city of Basra will be smitten in the future? We're not discussing what will happen in the future to Edom in this Pasuk. And the Rebbe says more basic than this is that each one of the kings who are mentioned, except for one, the Pasuk tells us where they came from, and Rashi does not stop on any one of them to discuss the places where they came from. And more than that, when the last Melech, the last king in the Pasuk is mentioned, the Pasuk tells us the name of his city. The Pasuk also tells us the name of his wife and other details telling us who she was. And Rashi there does not even tell us why we need so many indications about that particular king. So here we understand that if we're going to follow the pshat, Rashi's way in explaining the pasuk, we understand that it's not really a question why we have to add signs and names of where they came from. So why does Rashi stop specifically about Botsra? So in order to understand this, we're going to go back to the original story of the very origins of Yaakov and Esau, these two nations, the Jewish people and the nation of Edom. So we all know that Rivka went to the holy people in her time, to Shaman and Aver, to find out what was going inside of her as she felt the two babies within her engaging in a struggle. And the Pasuk tells us that she was told, 
There are two nations inside of you. And two nationalities will spread out from inside of you. And one nation will be stronger than the other. And the older one will serve the younger one. And if we look into Rashi on this Pasuk, we find the following. When it says one nation will be stronger than the other, Rashi says that the two nations will never be equally great. They will never be great at the same time, but rather when one nation will rise, the other nation will fall. And at the end of the Pasuk, when it says the older one will serve the younger one, Rashi says nothing. So now we have to understand, being that it says that when one will rise, the other will fall, how can the Pasuk conclude with a simple statement that the older one will serve the younger one, indicating that this, without giving a condition, this indicates that it will constantly be a system in which the older one will serve the younger one. And it doesn't depend on any type of condition. Whereas we said before that when one will rise, the other will fall. And the Rebbe says like this, that when it says there are two nations inside your stomach, two nations inside of you, Rashi says, Goyim means nations, but it's really written as Geyim, two very great people. The Lashon Geya is a Lashon of greatness. And these are Antoninus, who was a Roman emperor, and Rebbe Udanossi, who was the one who completed the Mishnah, Rebbe was from Bnei Yaakov, Antoninus was from Bnei Esav, and on the words, two nations, Rashi says, Ein lo'um ela malchus, the word lo'um, which means a nation, really refers to a kingdom. So what do we see here? That the Pasuk is not really saying the same thing twice with regard to the struggle inside of Rivka, where there was a greater one and perhaps a lesser one, but rather the following, two types of greatness. So when the Pasuk says two great, two, two, two geyim, two goyim inside of you, it's really referring to Yaakov and Esav, who are individuals, and from them will come specific people, like we mentioned, Antoninus, Rabbi Yudha and two nationalities refers to Yaakov and Esav, not as individual people who stem from them, but rather two monarchies, two kingdoms. From here we understand that when the apostle continues and then indicates about these nations or these characters, one nation will be stronger than the other, and the older one will serve the younger one. So this is really following the two previous remarks in the Pasuk. When the Pasuk says one nation will be stronger than the other, this is talking about the nation of Yisrael, the nation of the Jewish people, and the nation of Esav. And in them, what kind of system will it be? When one will rise, the other will fall. But when it speaks about the older one will serve the younger one, it's not specifically speaking about particular people, like the two great people who stem from each one respectively, but it's just a statement that no matter who the people will be, Rav Yavot Sa'ir, the greater one, the older one, the bigger one will serve the younger one. And that's why if we look further, we find in that parsha where this is introduced, that when Yitzchak gave his brachos to Yaakov, what was the bracha? He said to him, you will be a great person 
above your brother, so to speak, without any kind of condition or any kind of limitation that you will be greater at one particular time or at certain particular times rather than at others. And for this very reason, if we read the story further, that when Esav realized that the brachos had been given to Yaakov and he came to plead with his father to give him a bracha as well, Yitzchak said to him, what would be the benefit of giving you a bracha as Rashi explains there? It's obvious that he is your boss, and if you will have anything, any possessions, the principle is that the master really owns the possessions of the servant. However, he adds in that pasuk that when the Jewish people will transgress the Torah, then Esau will be able to throw off the burden, the leadership of Yaakov, or the power of Yaakov over him. In other words, that even at a time when the Jewish people will be in a lower level and will not be seeming to experience the greatness that was promised to them, Esau will still remain an Ebed, he will still remain subordinate to Yaakov, but at that point, he will not necessarily feel the burden of being enslaved to Yaakov. Now, let's go on. We learned the Posuk at the end of our parsha. The Posuk says, These are the kings who ruled in the land of Edom, the land of Esav, before there were kings, by the Jewish people, there were kings ruling over Edom. So the Torah is telling us that how did this happen? That one nation will overpower the other. When one will rise, the other will fall. Certainly, Edom had kings, but they were kings before there even was a Malchus, before there even was a monarchy by the Jewish people. And after that, when the Jewish people started having Malachim, started having kings, so there we learn, Rashi says, Edom no longer had kings. They no longer continued the system of monarchy. Now, being that the older one will serve the younger one, and the older one will be a gvir, will be superior to, the younger one will be superior to the uh, older one. So this is something that is constant, and it applies to particular individuals. So at that time, when the Jewish people will fall and there will be the throwing off of the yoke of servitude, how can it be that Esau had kings in his time exactly the same way that the Jewish people had kings in their time, and we don't see that one set of kingship, one set of kings who ruled were superior by one or one set of kings when they ruled were superior by the other. So what is really going on here? How does this fit? Are they equal? Are they different? Is one higher? Is one lower? So now the Rebbe is going to explain that the Parsha is really explaining this to us by telling us where each of the kings of Edo came from. The name of the city or the name of the country, where the land where each one came from. Because all of these places where all of the, the kings who are mentioned, who ruled over Edom, are not really from the land of Edom and, at all. But they came, and these kings of Edom were not really direct descendants of Aesop. They really descended from other lands, from other places, from other nations. So that would apply to all those mentioned in the apostle. However, Rashi stops specifically by one, 
And this is Yovav, the son of Zerach. That's the Rashi, the Pasuk we started with on Rashi's explanation, this part of the Pasuk. And Yovav, son of Zerach, came from Botra. Now, why is this a problem? How is this different from the other kings who are mentioned and the places where the other kings came from? So Rashi clearly explained to us, we have a question that Yovav maybe did come from Esav because Zerach is mentioned in the Pasuk as being one of the heads, the great heads of families that came from Esau that the Pasuk mentions. So maybe he was actually from Esau. Number two, when we speak about Botsra in Tanakh, the name is mentioned in Yeshaya, the name is mentioned when Hashem comes to avenge the blood of the Yidden, ultimately in the times of Mashiach. So Botsra is mentioned in connection with the land of Edom. So it seems that Botsra from which this king came is actually a city in the land of Edom. That's why Rashi comes and tells us that's not the case. Basra was actually a city of Moab. And this actually shows us that Yovav, the son of Zerach, is definitely not from the descendants of Esau because he comes from the descendants and the, the society of Moab. And when we do find that Basra is mentioned in some way in conjunction with the land of Edom, Rashi says clearly, yes, there's a reason why these two are connected, but not because Botsra is really a city of Edom, a land of Edom, but because it happens to be that from the place of Botsra, a king came out who ruled over, the, who, who was a king, and he uh, actually was against B'nai Yisrael. He he was not a friend of the Jewish people, so he served the purpose of Edom, but he himself was not an Edom. And therefore, when Hashem will come to avenge the blood of the enemies, Hashem will also avenge the blood of this Melech who joined as part of Edom, even though he wasn't Edom, against the Jewish people. Now we're going to understand that when Rashi says the words, because this place, Botsra, was the source set up a king for Edom. The king from Edom was not Edomite at all, but he came from Basra, Asida Lilkos Imahem. So Rashi is coming to teach that something else that we may not understand in the Rashi, because Rashi says that Basra was, was from the cities of Moab, and Rashi proves from a postbook that mentions cities of Moab, one is Kroyos, one is Botsra, and then Rashi says the Gomer, etc., and others like it. But when Rashi says that in the future this Botsra will be punished together with Edom, Rashi does brings the words, because we learned a postbook that says that Hashem will uh, commit a slaughter in Botsra, but Rashi doesn't say the Gomer. So why is that the case? Why does Rashi not say, and similarly in other places? So here the Rebbe explains very clearly that when we want to know that Basra is a city of Moab, it's enough to say that Kroyos is a city of Moab and Basra is a city of Moab because these are cities of Moab. And then it says, Moab and all other cities. So this is proof that these are all cities of Moab. But when we come to the fact that Botsro will be punished together, Imahem, together with the lands and the kings of Edom, together with Edom, 
And the proof is really not from the words Kizavach Lahashem Bibotsra alone, because Edom is not really Botsra itself, but it would when it says Vigomer that there will be a great in that same Pasuk, it says Vitevach Godol Be'eretz Edom, that there will be a great slaughter, a great vengeance in the land of Edom. And Rashi there does not add the word Vigomer. So why when he mentions that Basra is part of Moab, does he add Vigomer? And when he wants to tell us that there'll be a great punishment to the people of uh, Edom, the people of Botsra, he doesn't uh, say Vigomer to indicate the part of the Pasuk that we just mentioned, that there'll be a great tevach, a, a great slaughter in Edom. And now the Reb explains it like this. When it says that Hashem will make a great slaughter in Botsra, and it will also a great killing of the people of Edom, we could learn out that what? That Botsra being from Moab is mentioned because it will be slaughtered together with Edom. But we don't have to know this right now. We don't have to know that there will be a great Tevach, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. All we have to know over here is that when it says Tevach Godol, the Edom, the Vav is just coming to teach us that two things. Number one, being that there will be, two things will happen. Hashem will come and he will destroy Botsra. And there will also be a destruction of the land of Edom. But we don't have to say what follows because that really doesn't apply here. And this is not really what we are discussing. Now, when Rashi says, Veravya votes ear in the beginning of the story, when Yitzch, when Rivka is informed that amongst these two that are inside of her, the older one will serve the younger one. The Rebbe raises a question here. And the question is a very interesting question that comes to our Parsha. In our Parsha, we learn Parsha's Vayishlach, because the Pasuk we just started with was the end of Vayishlach, but in the beginning of Vayishlach, we learn Vayishlach Yaakov, Malachim al Yaakov sent messengers or Malachim to Esau. And what did he tell them to say to Esau? So you should speak to my master, Esav. So says your servant, Yaakov, letting you know that I want to find favor in your eyes. And we also learned that not only did Yaakov make himself indicate that he seemed inferior to Esav, he calls Esav Adoni, my master. He calls himself Avdecha, your servant. And he says, I want to find favor in your eyes. And then we continue that not only did Yaakov show this kind of attitude towards his brother, one of sort of being inferior, but he also sent a gift to Esau. He also bowed before Esau seven times. This is clearly written in the puzzle. He called him my master several times. He called himself your servants several times. So this is completely contradictory. This is the complete opposite of the fulfillment of what the Pesach says that Rivka was told that the older one will serve the younger one. Here it seems to be the other way around. So if we're following the Pshat of the Pesach, the literal story, so we can understand, as we know, Yaakov was afraid, we learned earlier, that maybe he had done a sin 
And maybe because he had done a sin or something had happened to him as a result of a sin, Yaakov was afraid that the outright promise of Hashem, where Hashem said, I will do good to you and I will make you very, very great and I will make your children like the dust of the earth, etc. So he was really afraid that maybe this will not be fulfilled because maybe along the way, a person never knows what could happen. Maybe he had done some kind of sin and therefore the prophecy of Rav Yavot Sa'ir, that the older one will serve the younger one, will not be fulfilled. And he was afraid of that. And that's why he spoke in this manner. On the other hand, being that the bracha that he got from his father was you will be superior, you will be sort of a master or a lord or something of that nature for your brother. And this does not depend on any kind of condition, whether the Jewish people uh, sin or not, because even when the Jewish people will transgress the Torah, as we mentioned earlier, as Rashi points out from the Pasuk, and Esau will be able to throw off the yoke of servitude, but he will still be the inferior one. So how could Yaakov do an act that's the exact opposite from the promise and the nevuah that was given regarding his stature in the eyes of Esau, his relationship with Esau, and, and go to the point where he actually considers Esau his master, he says Adoni, and he considers himself the servant of Esau, as he says, Abtecha. So we can find one answer is in the Midrash, that because Yaakov sent Malachim to Esau and called him my master, he was punished for this. But on the other hand, the Rebbe says, we've discussed many times that the Avos were not just ordinary people. They were what we call Amarkava. They were a chariot of the divine will Call ye mayhem, it says, all the days of their lives. So if they were on that holy level, they were completely uh, given over to Hashem in every single aspect of their lives, every single one of their days. So we can't really say that they, chas that they did a sin or they did something wrong. And even though certain things appear to be a sin, we can't even say they're not a sin. That the whole idea of doing wrong doesn't exist by them. And this is what we actually see, that even though Yaakov was punished, according to the Medrash, from the way he conducted himself with Esau, by trying to flatter Esau and things of that nature, we still learn from here the following principle, that when one is in a situation where there has to be peace with one's neighbors or with one's enemies, we are told, machnifim ba'olam hazeh, one can't flatter the Russia in this world because we want to have Darche Shalom. So how do we understand this? Was Yaakov right? Was Yaakov wrong? How could one of the Ovos do something like this? What does it really mean? So Siddhis explains a very interesting thing that Esav and Yaakov don't come from the same source. And in the spiritual source, Esav is really higher than Yaakov. And that's why he was really the Bechor. He was really the firstborn. And the fact that Yaakov was able to refine the level of Esau, Yaakov was able to transform Esau in some way. So a very high light from the essential source of Esau really came down into Yaakov. And now we could understand that I was going to explain this very clearly. What does it mean 
that Yaakov sent Malachim, he sent Malachim Lefanov before him, El Esav. And what did he say to these Malachim? So you should say to my master Esav, so says your servant Yaakov, similarly regarding the great gift that he presented Esav with, that Yaakov, essentially what he was trying to do was to refer to Esav, his master, or, all of, or himself as the servant, he was referring to the fact that he was really aiming to accomplish something that was way, way beyond himself and going all the way to the source of Esav when it says, live banav before him. He was reaching for something higher than his own source. Yet, the Medrash does, does say that this was some kind of lowering for Yaakov. That's how it appeared here. It was definitely not the way perhaps it should have been on the surface. So now we have to explain that the very fact that Yaakov did lower himself and did send uh, these gifts to Esau and did refer to Esau as his master and did refer to himself as Esau's servant, this really is very clear and fits in very well with the way we learn these subjects, not only in the story and not only with the explanation of Rashi, but Bipnimius with the explanation of Chassidus. And this is what the Rebbe is going to explain to us. That when one is fighting a war with Ra, with evil, and we're trying to refine all the things that are not positive in the world, how can we be victorious over the negative forces? So there are two ways to achieve victory, two ways to achieve success. One way to, to get rid of the darkness or to make the negative things positive is by revealing very great light. So the one who is going to do this process brings, is able to call forth a very, very great light of Kedusha. And this light of Kedusha, when it shines in all of, in, of holiness, when it shines with all of its force, it pushes away the bad, it pushes away the darkness. And of course, when the darkness is pushed away, the sparks of Kedusha that are there can rise up, can be refined. That's one way of doing it, coming with a great light to, this, to get rid of or to refine the great darkness. But there is also another way that this can be done. And this is called not a revelation of light, but a revelation of the one who is doing the process of refining and purifying, coming down and vesting himself or vesting itself in the one, in the thing that is being refined in such a way that by coming down there, not only can the bad seem to go away, or not only can the bad be destroyed, but one is able to literally take the bad and transform it into good. Now, each one of these ways, of these paths to achieve birur, to achieve refinement and light, each one has an advantage over the other. If we are talking about the one who is doing the work of of eliminating the bad. So certainly the first way that we mentioned seems to be a better one because the one who is doing the refining does not have to lower himself to the level of the thing that is being refined. The, the one who is doing the work is really separate from the actual bad itself and is able to refine the sparks of holiness. However, if we're following the second path, we know it says that if one has to struggle with something disgusting, with something dirty, with something negative, they also become a little bit dirty. If you're wrestling in the dust, you're also going to get dusty. 
which means that the one who is doing the work is actually being lowered from his previous level, and it could even cause a flaw, a lowering in him. But on the other hand, if we're coming from the angle of that which is being refined, not from the angle of the one who was doing the process of refining, it's the opposite way. In the first way, being that it's through a revelation of light, so what happens is the light is there, but the bad is being pushed away. But in the second way, when the refiner, when the one who was trying to better the world, to purify the Ra in the world, to, to transform the darkness of the light in the world, comes all the way down and becomes part of this darkness in a sense. This way, the actual thing that is being refined becomes completely transformed themselves. And in conclusion, the Rebbe teaches us that the ultimate intention of the Avodah of Torah and Mitzvot, which is, as we have a, the Rambam says, that the whole purpose, the Torah was given to bring shalom into the world. What does shalom mean in the innermost sense? True shalom is that the opposing force becomes transformed to the other side completely. And that's what we mean when we say to make shalom in the world. World, by definition, is from the word hella, which means concealment. The world is a place of concealment, ungodliness. And the point is to make shalom ba'olam, to take the very concealment, not to push it away, not to cover it up, not to even get rid of it, but rather to transform the world itself into Gdusha. And that's why when we say about the Torah, that the Torah, uh, Al-Tarebbe brings it in Tanya, Nasa, it journeyed, the Yarda, and it descended, Lemata, all the way to the bottom. What does that mean? That the Torah vested itself, clothed, clothed itself into the tree of Tov and Ra, into good and bad. The good and the bad are now mixed into each other. And now we are able, by learning the Torah and fulfilling the mitzvos to not only push away the bad or even eliminate the bad, but take the bad and literally transform it into good. And this is really the point if we go to the psukim in Yeshaya, where we speak about Basra and we speak about Edom and we speak about the fact that Hashem will come towards the end of Sefer Yeshaya, that Hashem will come and he will avenge the enemies of the Jewish people, and he will avenge Edom, and he will get bloodied in the process, as it says, the Chalmal Bushai, Ega'alti, Ega'alti, the Shoresh Gimel Aleph Lamed, depending how it's used, has various meanings. Ega'alti means that I have made my clothing dirty, in other words, in order to accomplish Geula, which is the same root, redemption, so the innermost meaning of redemption is when all of the evil, all of the klipa, will be so refined, as we read this, if we look into the Sukkim and Yeshaya, and in order to really transform the bad, in order to really transform the darkness in the muscle of the one who dirties his clothes, the Holy One has to come down into the very place of klipa. And this is really what happens with Sadiqim. This pasuk was written about Hashem himself as a Moshal. 
But we all know that Chazal teaches in the Medrash that Sadikim Domin Leboram, Sadikim resemble their creator, and therefore Sadikim sometimes have to lower themselves down from their high level, and they have to actually vest themselves, close themselves, put themselves into the garment, so to speak, or whatever it is that they are refining. And this way, this will rectify whatever is wrong with whatever has to be repaired, and this will actually fulfill or make materialize the intention of the Torah coming down here. Now, so shalom ba'olam, there will be no more contradiction between the good and the bad. Everything will be good because all the things that appear to be evil will have been transformed. And in conclusion, the Rebbe tells us the following, that this is also the reason why Yaakov, remember we said that Yaakov seems to have lowered himself when he was approaching Esau. He seems to have been intimidated by Esau. He seems to have expressed his inferiority to Esau, wishing that Esau would accept him the way he is. Why? Not only regarding Esau's source, because Yaakov was aiming for something higher, but simply down here in this world, where it has, even though it has to be a system of Rav Yavot Zair, that Esau really is serving Yaakov. Esau is really inferior to Yaakov. Because in truth, the perfect, the complete refinement, the complete bringing up of Esav is when Esav himself admits that he accepts the brachos of his father, or he accepts all those messages where he seems to be second, the greater one will serve the younger one. And in order to do this, there has to be not only a great revelation of light, but actually Yaakov coming down all the way to the level of Esau, which seems to be a Yerida. And in truth, we actually see in the very psukim in the story that this is what happened. Because if we look further in the Chumash, after Yaakov sort of lowered himself before Esau and seemed to show that he was inferior, what happened? What happened after Yaakov and Esau meet? And Esau sees this great entourage of his brother's wealth and servants and children and presents. And what, what does he say to Esau? What, I'm sorry, what does Esau say to Yaakov there? Yehi lecha asher lecha. Whatever is yours is yours. I'm not here to take anything away from you. It belongs to you. You deserve it. Esau is acknowledging that all the gifts and all the glories that you have and that were promised to you are really yours. And that, of course, includes the bracha of that Yaakov will be the superior one to Esav. And this will, of course, lead to the complete refinement of Esav, which did not yet happen, but which will happen in the revelations of the future Geula, where it says, Asher Avo El Adoni Seira, when the two will meet, and we learn from the Pasuk, we say this every single day in uh, after Az Yashir, and it's from the book of Ovadia, Ovadia being a Ger, a Novi, who actually stemmed from Esav, and there it says, that the saviors will alight to Hart Sion, Lishpot as Har Esav to judge her Esav, and at that point when it will all be complete, it will be acknowledged and known everywhere and by everyone that the ultimate Malchus belongs to Hashem, 
may we merit that this happens speedily in our time. Amen. Thank you.